Colectivo Raíces presenta su programa Espejos de Aztlán Información, Arte, Cultura Bienvenidos So today we are with Dr. Yolanda Chavez Leiva. She is a Chicana historian and writer. She specializes in Mexican-American and U.S.-Mexico border history. She's the director of the Institute of Oral History and associate professor at the University of Texas at El Paso. We'll talk with her today about this historical and controversial figure of Don Juan de Oñate and the statues of conquerors in the Southwest. For Espejos Aslan today, Cristina Bachin, bienvenida, Dr. Chavez Leiva. Thank you so much for, for, bringing, for coming today to this show and giving us your time. Thank you so much for the invitation to talk about this controversy that's so much in the news right now. Yeah, and I was really puzzled by this article that you wrote a while ago in the New Mexico Historical Review in 2007. And the topic, I thought this is perfect for us to talk about. The title was Monuments of Conformity, Commemorating and Protesting Oñate on the Border. I would like to begin with a rhetoric question that you included in your work from historian Sarah Horton. Is the reenactment of the Spanish conquest an innocent commemoration of past Spanish glory, or does it serve as a public sanction of existing racial inequalities? You included this question since the beginning. What are your reflections about uh, your thoughts about uh, this uh, topic that we are reenacting today as well? It's a really wonderful question to think about. What do these statues mean? What do the commemorations really mean? And I'm a public historian, which means that I work with museums and I work with history in the public. So I'm always thinking about history and what does it mean to our society? What does it mean outside of the classroom? There is no such thing as neutral history. There's no such thing as neutral statues or commemorations. We have that phrase in English to put somebody up on a pedestal. So that's to make a hero out of them, to admire them. Well, statues literally put people on pedestals. So when I look at statues of the conquistadores or Confederate statues, I ask, why are we putting people on a pedestal? What, what have they done? Sometimes people tell me that if we take down those statues, we're erasing history. And I totally disagree with that because first, the statues aren't teaching us history. History is very complex and history is very full of nuances and, and many perspectives and statues can't do that. What statues do is They show us who is considered noteworthy, memorable, heroic at a certain point in time. So if you look at the Confederate statues, they start to go up in the 1920s when the Ku Klux Klan is coming back to life. They go up in the 1950s when the civil rights movement is going. So why are 
the conquistador statues going up and what's happening at that time? We are here, as you might know, with uh, a long uh, controversy around this Don Juan Oñate statue and riots and all uh, in this last uh, happening, especially in these last weeks. And the other thing, our radio station is in a, in a hall, which name is Oñate uh, again. At El Paso, there were lots of stories around, uh, also like the 12 travelers on which Oñate was again a figure of the controversies. What I'm wondering is how is possible that a figure that even was convicted by the same Spanish government because of his cruelty here with the Acoma people. What happened that we are honoring in the Southwest, we are honoring such a figure, a figure of cruelty, a figure who brought along other people genocide. What's the story of this person? Why is still honored in the Southwest? You're totally right that there are so many things named Oñate in New Mexico, definitely, but also here where I live in El Paso and Las Cruces. We have the Oñate Crossing. We have Oñate High School. We have a statue of Oñate at the airport, even though it's called the Equestrian. Why do we honor him? In part, I believe it's because people don't understand the full story. There are historians that say that he ordered the foot of all men in Acoma Pueblo, 12 years and up, to be cut off, that it would be amputated, but that he didn't carry that out. But that doesn't matter to me. He ordered it. And what you say about Spain putting him on trial for cruelty argues against the other thing that people say, which is he was a man of his time. We can't judge him. Even if I go with that argument that we can't judge him, Spanish government judged him at that time. So he was not a hero in his time. He was a bad administrator, and he was considered in his time excessively cruel. So why are we honoring him? I think it has to do with, for, the, for New Mexico, for the Texas that I live in, we're always looking for our connection to the U.S. story. We're looking for our connection to, and I'll just be very blunt, we're looking for a connection to whiteness. You know, New Mexico was not allowed to be a state until 1912 because politicians didn't want to incorporate so many Mexican-Americans. And I know very well that in New Mexico, people refer to themselves as Hispanic. So I'll say that Congress didn't want Hispanic people then. Very hard for New Mexico to become a state. It was very hard for people who are Mexican-American to gain equality. So part of the strategy was, well, we will start to say that we are white people because white people have rights and white people are considered equal and superior, actually. Not equal, but superior. So people like Juan de Oñate, people like different conquistadores or the governors of New Mexico are labeled as white because they come from Europe. And there's that connection we want to be close to power. We want to be 
close to whiteness. And that's whether people know it or not. I don't think the general public goes around saying we want to be white. I don't, I don't think so. Even though if you look in our communities, there's a lot of colorism. So it, when a baby's born, if that baby is very light-skinned, ay, qué bonito, qué güerito. A dark-skinned baby doesn't necessarily get that kind of positive attention. So that exists in our communities. But there's a long history of our trying to be close to whiteness and to be connected to Spain versus to be connected to the Native people is part of that wanting to to be close to rights, to be close to equality. So why Don Juan de Oñate and uh, the Spaniard conquerors became persons to be in a pedestal in the history of the Southwest, they particularly? There's this storyline that goes with Juan de Oñate that says that he brought civilization to New Mexico. And when people say that, and people do still say that, I still read it and I still hear that he brought civilization to New Mexico. Aside from the fact that it is a horrible way to think about the Native people who were already there, it's the old idea that they were not civilized, which is not true. People say he brought civilization. Well, what is civilization? It is horses, arms, so guns and armaments. An anthropologist told me once he's the one that brought Chile to New Mexico, so we have to really honor him for that. And he brought Spanish culture. So people say that, have said that for many decades, that he brought civilization, so we should honor him. The other thing people say very often about conquistador statues is maybe they were very terrible to Native people, but they were fighting something they believed in. They were very brave men. So those kinds of characteristics that people give them of civilization, of great bravery and courage, that is a very one-sided way. Because certainly when Native people in my area and in New Mexico were fighting against being taken over by Spain, they were also brave. They were courageous. They were fighting for their families. So why do we only have the conquistadores? But let me add here, I'm not saying I want statues of Native Americans either. <laughs> I was wondering that. <laughs> I would just do away with statues altogether. The only kind of statues that I would like is if we had statues that didn't focus on one, focused on groups of people. We saw that history is not made by one great person. History is made by all of us. Actually, we are focusing on uh, the, the figures of conquerors, but actually we're talking about identities. And in your article, you highlight like moments or times on which the identities in, in the non-white and the white side change a lot. You mentioned like milestones, like in the, in the 30s, in the 60s, in the 90s. Can you just briefly tell us how these uh, identities changed, if it's changing again in the 2020s? There are times in the past hundred years when identities have changed. So, for example, let me go back to the 1920s. In the 1920s, there was a lot of migration from Mexico. 
It was after the Mexican Revolution and U.S. employers were recruiting Mexican workers. For the, for the Mexican laborers, while well, they were very much wanted in the United States because they were considered cheap labor, they were also looked down upon, again, as uncivilized, as backwards, as, as not equal to white people. And that, that goes back a long time. It goes back to the conflict between Spain and England, those ideas. So in the 20s, as there's more migration and people, I'll use the term Hispanic, and Hispanic people are seeing how Mexican immigrants are treated. They don't want to be treated that way. They don't want to be looked down upon as, as not equal to white people. And you start to see more of identity related to Spain. So that's in New Mexico, more of an identity related to Spain. In the 1930s, that gets stronger because of the Depression. Because the Depression, Hispanic people are blamed for all the economic problems. And even U.S. citizens are deported. Again, you want to not be connected to the way that Mexican immigrants are being treated. And then you have the 60s with the Chicano movement that says... We have our roots in the Americas going back thousands of years because we come from indigenous people. So the name of the show, Aslan, is very much representative of that time period of the 60s when people say, you know, we have indigenous roots, we have native roots. And New Mexico becomes an incredible place for the Chicano movement. It has the Grito del Norte newspaper, it, you know, the, the land grant issue in northern New Mexico. So that's an important time period. Now we come to 2020, and suddenly people are vandalizing statues, which happened before, but you see it so much right now. People are vandalizing statues, toppling statues over, throwing them into the ocean in the case of of England, and why? It's because I think in 2020, people are starting to question everything. And I have to give a lot of credit to younger people because they are questioning everything. They're questioning who has power. They're questioning what represents power. They're questioning inequality among people based on race, on ethnicity, on nationality. And it's a, a wonderful time in the United States and globally to have that happening, to have young people question. Because, you know, I always tell my students this, this nation was founded on these ideals of equality and freedom. And from the very beginning, we didn't have that at all. But every generation pushes this nation to live up to the ideals that it was founded under. So to me, 2020 is a really incredible time because people are questioning. And the young people, they understand that history is not neutral. The young people, they understand that a statue is not just a statue, right? That a statue represents equality. And to me, that's an incredible time to be alive as a historian and to see the younger generations doing this. We are today with
with Dr. Yolanda Chavez Leiva on Espejos de Aztlán. She is a Chicana historian and writer. She specializes in Mexican-American and U.S.-Mexico border history. She's director, the director of the Institute of Oral History and associate professor at the University of Texas at El Paso for Espejos de Aztlán today, Cristina Bachin hosting. You're talking about this protesting on Yate on the border, and you were talking about all the power that is bringing youth in, in this moment, in this time. And um, can we say that there are shifts in political identities that you were talking before that there were the 30s, the 60s, also you, in your article, we were talking about the 90s. And now, and it looks that the cycles are like every 30 years. I was checking, why is that <laughs> possible? So and in 2020, there is a whole power controversy and also I'm wondering what does it bring to political and social identity just I would like to to hear your thoughts about that I think that this is a time when identity is changing the identity of even what it means to be American very often we say that this nation is made up of immigrants that's a very common thing that people say But really, when you, when you think of American, I think people think it represents whiteness, it represents middle-classness, it represents uh, being connected to the history of the movement from the East to the West. So people say, oh, my ancestors were on the Mayflower, or my ancestors have been here for a hundred years. So I think all of that is connected to Americanness. And there's a reason for that. When our nation was brand new, there was a naturalization law about who could become a citizen. And it says directly in, it, in the language that you have to be white to become a citizen. So then the question has always been, well, who is white? I ask my students, sometimes I, I ask them, am I white? And then they don't know what to say. <laughs> It's a, hard, it's a hard question to think about. Who is white? So what I see in this time is a shift, a shift being demanded by African-American people, by Native people, by you know brown people to be not just to have our voices heard, but to be a true a true part of society, to have, for example, Black, Black Lives Matters. And then people say, all lives matter. But Black Lives Matter doesn't mean other people don't matter. It means let's look at who's getting killed. Our lives matter because we are the ones getting killed is what Black Lives Matter means. So it's not enough to just say, oh, yes, let's include some African-American history who we're teaching U.S. history. It's not about that. It's something more profound. It's a deeper shift to center the voices of other people who have been you know, on the margins, ignored, made to feel not part of the society. The society is changing, whether people like it or hate it or are scared of it. I think people are also scared of it. This society is changing. And I think it's a good thing. I would like to hear your voice about what would you like to see in our next 30 years happening from this moment that we're having now in 2020. That is such a good and hard question to answer because 
just you know i don't even want to say oh i would like this institution to change or that institution to change because there's so many institutions in our society that are used to keep people down to keep people powerless i wonder i wonder what institutions we could totally do away with for example i'm always trying to imagine what a better society would be no well, i was going to say i'm not a big believer in the idea of everything's getting better it, things do get better little by little ultimately the roots of the problems don't change i was watching 60s talk show the other day and it was with uh, dick cavett who was from when i was little he was talking to Baldwin and he told James Baldwin, well, isn't, aren't things getting better? And he used the word Negroes. He said, Negro, there's Negro mayors, there's Negroes on TV commercials now. So isn't it better? Looking at it, just like if you see some black faces, things are better. If you see some brown faces, things are better. But we have to go deeper. So I know I'm not directly answering your question because I think it's so hard to think of how to address the the really deep roots of inequality. We would we would have to destroy a lot of things that, that we're used to. Like people are talking about defund the police, which doesn't mean take away all the money from the police, but you know, do we need the police with military arms, tanks? So how do you change those kinds of institutions? It's mind boggling to think about. <laughs> It's the time when we can think about them. Thank you so much, Dr. Yolanda Chavez-Leyva, for sharing your thoughts and uh, your, uh, your reflections about today. And also, thank you so much for that brave work that you wrote in 2007 in the New Mexico History Review, Monuments of Conformity and Commemorating and Protesting Oñate on the Border. I can uh, bet that it was very brave and courageous from you to write it that in a historical review. Well, thank you so much, Christina. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much. And uh, I hope you, I'll see you soon in some other controversy about uh, history and Southwest uh, history. <laughs> I hope so too. 